Hello, I'm Dan Hall, making the show cost money. And if you listen regularly, please consider subscribing to my Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. But if you can't afford to, that's no problem. Instead, maybe you could recommend the show to a friend. Now then, let's get queer and start the show. Fucking read the information that this world is giving you. It is exhausting to me that people will not put in the minimal effort. This is In the Key of Q, featuring queer music, queer chat, and queer stories from around the world. Everyone is welcome to the conversation, whatever beautiful identity pleases you. Music helps us feel connected and know that we are not alone. Do remember to join the conversation across socials using the hashtag QueerMusic. I'm Dan Hall. Tune in and be heard. This week's guest, Rod, records under the name Bright Light, Bright Light. He's an artist, producer, composer, and DJ. He hails from Neath in South Wales, but now lives in New York City. He's toured and recorded with Sir Elton John, Erasure, and Sister Sisters. And he's even toured with Cher, someone who I worked with just at the start of lockdown. Rod, a big welcome to In the Key of Q. Hello. Thank you very much. How are you doing? If this is just another awkward conversation that we have, let's leave it till the morning. I want to go home. I'll stay up and go dance, just not this. How would you describe your music to people? Um, it's sort of pop music. I mean, people are like, what does that mean? I'm like, well, what do you think it means? You know, we know what it's like to listen to pop music. Um, it's it's pop music, but it's very influenced by um culture, pop culture really around. So 80s and 90s cinema is like my sweet spot. So a lot of films from the 80s and 90s are really influential on the way that I look at the world and how I um, approach making music. I love the energy and the humor and the color of those um, those decades. And so I try to infuse a bit of that joy in everything that I do. I've got to ask, what films? Because it's the, the 80s and 90s are the era of films that I absolutely adore, that sort of the, the, the beaches and the For the Boys and Desperately Seeking Susan. So uh, what what were your favorites? Like Mannequin, um, Flashdance, uh, Romy Michelle's High School Reunion, Death Becomes. Oh, I uh, love that film. Did you see yeah. their reunion picture recently? I did, yes. Yeah, oh, it was amazing. Was, I can't believe that she took those post-its on with her. So funny. Ah, ah. I mean, so just so wonderful. This is it. Like the people involved in a lot of these films, they were so fun and they were so in on the joke. I feel like the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of like self-reference and there was a lot of poking fun at yourself, which I think was just delicious. You know, it was, it allowed you to to live behind the curtain of the films that you're watching and it allowed you to feel part of it and it for, for it to make you feel like things were possible. Mm-hmm. You know, that these people were warm and uh, the films were warm enough to welcome you in but on the proviso that like you were able to like make your own versions of these and live your own lives and like this, you know, they were quite inspiring in that way. And they were silly, but poignant and funny, but serious and dark, but joyful. It was just a really nice interplay of, um, of drama and 
comedy in in a lot of the films that I love from those periods of time. When did you first become aware of music growing up? What were you being influenced by? I, I really honestly can't answer that. I don't remember a time when I wasn't. I really don't remember a time when I wasn't aware of music around me. I can't think of a single moment in my life where I haven't been aware of songs on the radio or songs in a car or songs in a shop. I can't, I can't remember a single moment where I haven't thought about music. Can you remember who some of the first artists were that you became aware of? Whatever was on the radio at the time, you know, uh, back in those days, really, which was SAW was dominating the airwaves in the UK back then. Definitely Madonna. I remember like as a four-year-old or a five-year-old, perhaps, me and my friend were singing bits of Material Girl on this wall that was in my parents' garden. Neither of us knew what the song was or knew who Madonna was, but we knew enough of it to sing the chorus. And I don't know how, I don't remember ever hearing that song, but we knew it. And that to me is wild that like we knew Material Girl as well as we knew a nursery rhyme, you know? Why do you think people like Madonna and actually people like Stockick and Waterman, Kylie, did chime with queer audiences? Because it's so camp. I mean, I honestly can't believe that Stock Aikman, Waterman are straight. Like the, nothing about their production style is heterosexual at all. Nothing about the styling of any single artist that they worked with is heterosexual. Nothing about the chord changes and melodies is remotely heterosexual. Like it's all so camp that I, it's, I, it blows my mind. I'd say I do love a Stock Aikman and Waterman chord change. I think the, the bridge and got to be certain is one of my favorites. I mean, it's... Well, it's just, it's also special. It's also unique. I mean, yes, a lot of the songs are copycats of each other, but the template itself is so, so different from everything else that other people were doing. And they really created something so magical that was very, very distinguishable. Like the minute you hear like a drum, you know, oh my God, that's a Stock Aitman Mm -hmm. thing. The minute you hear like the opening bar, you know exactly who's produced it. And that's so... So, so special. For me, I felt it was unfair when Stockhake and Waterman were being criticized for producing throwaway pop because you don't always have to want to be bettered as a person listening to music. For me, their value was it gave me a chance just to escape and imagine the playground romances that as a queer person, I wasn't allowed to have. So I had them in these songs instead. I don't really care about the opinion of anyone that says that. I feel like, you know, the the kind of people that were saying that we, you know, people forget that it was still like hugely conservative in the UK and hugely uptight in the UK during those years. So the people that were criticizing it were people that were like absolutely dull as fucking dishwater, that had no joy in their lives. You look at them, their skin was gray and translucent. Like, I don't care about those kind of people. There's also like the snobs that think that pop music is trash. I've had arguments even like as recently as last week or whatever, people saying like, pop don't i called annie lennox a pop star on twitter because she is you know and a rock star and a punk icon and whatever you want to call her she's all of those things and somebody was like don't uh don't denounce her like that or don't tar her image by calling her a pop star i was like what do you mean he's like well i always thought pop pop music is rubbish and she's better than that i'm like well that's you being bigoted honestly like that's a really reductive take on anything like that's absolutely pointless. So people that slam pop music, as it were, I think just like miss the point of it. It's meant to be something that is 
enjoyable and fun and escapist and poignant and it can do all of these things and pop music is such a, a loose term really for um for music that could be popular And I find it very funny when people criticize pop music and compare it unfavorably against what they call as being genuine or earnest music like Oasis or or something or I don't know, you know, Iron Maiden or something. And and I just always think, what, you think those record sleeves aren't designed and those marketing departments aren't put into practice and those music exactly. videos aren't it's just as manufactured as anything else. And to me, in that way, pop music as a by pop music, I mean what people perceive to be pop music, such as things like Steps or so, mm-hmm. or what they think of as being cheap music. At least it's saying we're here for entertainment and we're not pretending to be this earthy, ridiculous earnestness. The other things actually feel, I think, more dis, more pretending and make believe because they're selling earnestness when actually they're just as manufactured as everything else. It just sort of blows my mind that anybody in this day and age cannot look at something which is mass consumed and just understand that everything that is mass available is to a point constructed and to a point marketed and to a point, you know, contrived. Everything is because you don't get to be world famous if something is just like completely organic and not shaped in any shape or form to be palatable to more people than just yourself. You know, that applies to the Beatles, to Joni Mitchell, to whatever. Like there is craft involved. And the minute there is craft involved, there is something constructed and manufactured about it. And that doesn't mean that it's not genuine, but it means that there is skill in assembling these things Mm -hmm. into a form that takes it into a wider audience. So can you tell us what was growing up in Neath like in South Wales for those people listening who uh, don't know the United Kingdom that well? I mean, in many ways, blessed because I was in the countryside and I had access to beaches and, you know, trees and greenery, which is very fortunate for somebody, you know, it could have been a grey concrete landscape and, you know, could have been very depressing, but it felt very, very isolated um, as somebody that was very keen on pop culture and learning about different people and diversity and the world. Um, I remember the older I got, the more trapped I felt and hearing conversations with people. I mean, I grew up in a an old coal mining valley, which was forgotten about by the Tories and uh, inevitably became 
more, you know, isolated and depressed. And uh, a lot of Wales, I think, suffered the same kind of fate where it wasn't invested in. People weren't trying to help people to achieve any kind of dreams, ambitions, um, improvements that they wanted to make. And they were just kind of left to their own devices. So there was a, like a, you know, an air of closeness and resentfulness. And I remember hearing conversations, uh, very anti-gay, you know, by people in the farming community, surprisingly, just had no tolerance for gay people as it was just then just gay. Um, I was lucky that I had a group of friends who were LGBTQ plus that genuinely saved my life. Um, and Swansea was close by, which had multiple gay bars and a club, which were, again, lifesavers, you know, to have that outreach. But um, I remember feeling I had to get out as soon as I possibly could. Um, it's nowhere near the extent of that as it is in many places in the world. Nowhere near that, I'm aware. But at the time, I felt so claustrophobic that I thought I was going to explode. You know, I felt like even after coming out there, I felt like I had to leave because I felt like it was just around each corner. There was somebody that was going to not accept it, that was going to judge you for it, or it would get back to a family member that would like put it in the wrong hands or whatever. And, uh, I needed to leave. One of my guests from series one dead method who's from and performs in Cardiff, talks about how really he's still faced a lot of homophobia within the music industry in Cardiff. That, of course, uh, and, yeah. And for, oh, for those listening as well, Cardiff is the capital city of, of Wales. Yeah. And he only really recently has, within the past two or three years, has finally found his courage to say, oh, fuck you. I'm just going to do my own thing. It's just, it's a shame. I, I love... Wales in its essence, like it's a really beautiful country. It has so much to offer as like a, a place. It just suffered from feeling a bit forgotten, I think for a long time. And people that are forgotten about don't really look forward. They kind of look sideways, you know, it's not really, I don't blame anybody where I grew up for their outlook. I feel like they were surviving, like the world is quite often on survival mode and the people that are like the most resentful or the, the least willing to change or to, to look beyond themselves are people that are literally on survival mode because they're not told that they're worth any more than that. And to give a quick potted history to our listeners who are not aware of it, um, what we had in the 1980s was there were parts of Wales, such as where Rod is from, where mining was the main industry. It, it was a blue collar community and mining and the and the associated industries that supported it were everything. And then that collapsed. And pretty much because places like uh, where Rod grew up didn't tend to vote for the party that was in power, which was our conservative party, uh, there was very little effort really being given in to reboot these spaces because they were just feeding the money to rebooting those spaces that would vote conservative and help them stay in power, which meant mm -hmm. that there were huge communities that were left behind. And, and my father is from Wales, and he was very passionate about this. 
they were left behind. You know, you'd see in the valleys, like just derelict buildings and closed spaces and coal mines that were just there left to rot, you know, um, just massive tumps, which is basically like an earth covered dump, rubbish dump that I used to go play on, um, when I was younger, like cement, massive cemented lots that were just cracked and covered in weeds and everything like a giant patch of land by the old coal mine. And it just feels like nobody cared. You know, you could have done something really amazing with that space, even if it was just returning it to grass. You can tell me anything, something wrong or right. Just pick me up and get me out of here while I've still got an appetite. Tell me something funny. So good I wanna hear it twice Just fill me up with rhythm and a beat Take me into the night When did you make that crossover from listening to music to thinking, I'm actually going to start making it. I really, really want to start to create my own content. Oh, I don't even think it was that conscious a decision. You know, I started writing songs when I was 13 and I don't think I really thought like, I'm going to write songs. It was just sort of the natural progression from listening to music because music was just all around. I just, I just thought that everybody wrote songs. You know, I just thought that that was something that everybody did. Everyone has a job, everyone sings, everyone must write a song or have something to say. You know, I, I just wrote a lot and, and then it ended up happening. And then as the years went by, I got gradually less shit. <laughs> it's the same as like, if you start practicing a sport, you don't get good really. You just get less crap for a while until you eventually become quite good, you know? Maybe that's a good idea of how to live one's life then. Instead of trying to be perfect, as long as we can be a bit less shit each day, then yeah. it's a win. Yeah. Like you're not going to go from having a terrible food diet to being like, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's vegan goop nonsense, but you can eat less crisps. Yeah. You know? And if you eat less crisps, you'll feel less shit. Yeah. So I think it's like understanding that there's like scales of, of everything good and bad in your life. And you can do more and less of them and kind of create some kind of balance. But there's such an emphasis on being brilliant or being perfect or like getting rid of all of the bad in one go. I don't think it naturally works like that. So like, you know, learning the saxophone, for example, which is the, the most recent in instrument that I learned. I'm not amazing at it, but I'm really good at what I want to play. So I learned it and got better and better and better or got less and less clunky and less and less bad in the way that I wanted to play it. So I don't think I could play, I could be somebody saxophonist on tour, but I can kill it doing what I want to do. So you've spoken about a complex and conflicting relationship with Wales. There comes a point where you decide to go to New York. Is that straight from Wales? No, I was in London for nearly nine years before that. Okay, then. And what was that like in London for you? Bits of it were great. Bits of it were really not. And overall, I'm extremely glad I don't live there anymore. But I love to go back and I love to see my friends there. I don't think I'd be here if I hadn't been in London for that length of time. Um, I definitely needed to leave when I did. And now I get to enjoy the parts of it that I really like, and I don't have to deal with the bits of it that I didn't like so much. 
I made lots of amazing friends and I had lots of great times in London, but I don't feel like I found like a network of musicians that were looking to support each other. Um, which I did find in New York straight away. I find like the outlook was different and it's less pessimistic. There's like a, the cliche of British people like liking to moan or, you know, being a bit like, oh, well, I can't do that kind of thing. Stay in your lane. Like a few other friends from the UK music industry moved here as well. And we were so exhausted by being told to stay in our lane, not to rock the boat, not to like be, you know, think we were better than we were kind of thing. And it is just so toxic. It was so designed to keep you at bay. In New York, I'm treated as a contemporary. In London, I was treated as a competitor. And that sense of competition is something that does happen. Now I I reach out to queer British podcasts and say, can we do a promotion swap or can we do it? And the answer always is, uh, you know, oh well, we'll think about it or or can you can you send us some stats and a presentation to justify why we should do yeah. this? And it's not like these are big shows. And you, no. I sent the same request to the American queer podcast and they'll be like, yep, yeah, cool. Here's, here's the link to the WAV download for my promo. And Yeah, it's, it's a strange thing to explain. And that's not to say that, you know, I have lots of collaborators that are still living in London that I do work with, like John Shave, who writes for, with like Jade Thirlwall and lots of other massive people and Ian Masterson, who writes with Bananarama and Danny Minogue and lots of like people that, are really fantastic that have given me plenty of support and time, but on mass, I didn't get that, you know, from the music industry, like in general or other artists per se, writers and producers, maybe yes, but other artists I found very, um, reticent to kind of do anything other than ironically people who had already sold millions of records because I wasn't a threat to them probably. Paying for visas was extremely expensive. My green card was extremely expensive. So I would have saved a lot of money by staying in the UK, but I would have lost my absolute mind. And I think I would have been extremely depressed. The whole point of this podcast is really to allow queer artists to have a bit of a voice. What I'd like to say to my artists now is for maybe the first time in their lives, they're going to get a piece of raw airtime where no editing is going to take place. There's going to be no correcting, no, oh, I think he probably meant this. I'm just going to tweak that. This is completely your space to talk about whatever you want. I think, honestly, the only thing I really want to talk about is people just looking after each other, which I've, you know, basically said in the last part of our conversation, but for LGBTQ plus artists, it is really, really imperative that you find and you nurture community. I think so many people are trying to exist 
autonomously and you do have to find a way to be self-sufficient and self-reliant and self-depending but you really do need to remember to think about community around you like nobody exists in a bubble everybody is connected to everybody else and that includes being connected to the fucking assholes that you have to survive you know everything is linked together and you have to find ways to to live and navigate the world like in relation to other people I'm really, really bored of seeing people screaming across a void and not listening. I feel nobody listens to anybody else. You know, I, all I can see online in the last month or two, which has driven me out of my brain, is people not reading information, people not listening to information, not digesting facts that are like, li <coughs> sorry, literally in front of them. And this goes from everything from, um, political discourse, social commentary, race issues, LGBTQ issues, um, the price of a loaf of bread or the fact like, you know, I will do like a video on TikTok, which says very clearly at the top, download this song from brightlightx2.com. And the first comment would be like, where can I get this? And I'm like, fucking read the information that this world is giving you. It is exhausting to me the people will not put in the minimal effort. Like this is going back to like just being less shit. Like you do not have to be like a speed reader to, to see the information that I have put in front of you. You just have to try for one second to not default to making somebody do more work for you. This is like what I really want the LGBTQ plus community to do is to put in the bare minimum work to like be somebody of use to somebody else as well as used to yourself and as well as expecting other people to be used to you. Like we cannot exist without each other. This is so like every single person in the community, we are all connected. We all need to put in work. We all need to help each other. We need to help ourselves and each other. There is nothing you can do if you're expecting other people to constantly do work for you. Like we need to make effort. We need, especially if you're like cis white males, there is an incredible amount of work that you need to do and can do and will be heard for doing over other people in the community. Like in a way, calling it the LGBTQ plus community is just such a lazy term because nobody is the same in that. We're just not straight, right? So we have a lot of, it's kind of like being um, a foster parent and learning how to nurture and respect everybody that comes through your door and having an open mind and learning the different ways people live, the, people's different backgrounds, people's different situations and traumas and successes and failures and really seeing like the wider picture. I, I feel like people are just defaulting to defense mechanisms, memes, lack of, lack of insight, like just knee jerk reactions, like hot takes and all this stuff which is not useful to the world and they forget that you're supposed to have elements of empathy and love and knowledge and you know just insight into things like and these things are not new concepts these have been concepts since like the absolute beginning of time before man's time when like amphibians learned these skills without any social media to tell them how to do it. Like 
just, I really hope that people are able to, and there are, there are many people doing this. There are many, many, many people putting in hours and hours and hours of work to be advocates, to be spokespeople. And I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about doing tiny little things on a day-to-day basis that you probably don't think make an enormous amount of difference to the world, but really do. Like not ask, not doing things that make people repeat themselves a million times so that people don't lose their energy. Not asking every person of color that you know to explain the history of racism. You can fucking Google everything that you need to Google. Even if it's just a, an overview, don't ask every trans person you know, what that, what it's like to be a trans person. Like you can ask them to tell them their personal experiences, but like, don't expect a trans person to do the work on trans history for you. Don't expect a person of color to tell you the back history of white supremacy. Put in, you know, little bits of effort to ease the situation for people around you, whether that's, you know, it's the same principle as like, buying your friend a cup of tea or making your mom a cup of tea when you see they've had a hard day and they're just tired and they need somebody to take the brunt of the smallest effort away from them. It's the same, just applying that mindset into the world around you and just, you know, being a little bit less selfish or reliant on people hand feeding you things. I feel like we're, we're so used to now social media telling us things or you know, people creating these little infographics, which tell us snippets and blah, blah, blah. We can all find that information ourselves if we really try. Like seeing how our tiny actions affect those people around us is really important. I think that's, that's what I want to say. Like trying to put the smallest effort into helping empower a community and support a community and uh, allow community to be something which you're proud to be part of and happy to be part of and can thrive because of the small efforts that you make. Oh, I hope you like the danger that you started. You like the freedom that you've taken back from me. It's cold outside. It's incredibly, incredibly easy to make other people feel valuable. Yes. In a very genuine way. It, it really, really is. And, and one of the big things at the moment is, oh, you, but you can't be people pleaser. You can't do this. That's not people pleasing. That's no. simply having the social awareness to look around the room and go, who is feeling left out? Who is slightly out of the loop? Who's slightly out of the gear? Let me go and welcome them in. Yes, I think it's also, like I was saying, it's not being great at doing that. It's being less shit. You know, like, don't walk into a room. If you can hear your own voice more than anybody else's, shut the fuck up for a minute and let somebody else talk. Like, there are so many people I meet that do not have the 
vague ability to understand that they've been monologuing at a room versus letting other people talk. And that to me is, is wild. Like I'd actually, when I said to you, you know, off air, like when you were like, to talk, I, I, I struggle with that because I try to not do that in, in real life. And I often take the backseat and I'm often silent in rooms of people. Mm-hmm. Don't give off the energy that you think that certain people in a space are worth less than you are. Like look at everybody in the same way, allow people to talk in, in the same way, allow people to contribute ideas, to have fun, to laugh, to whatever, you know, you can read people's body language. That's really not um, rocket science. You can see very clearly if somebody is very unhappy or very ill at ease in a situation. And perhaps you can't actively bring them out of that situation, but you can definitely actively downplay other things in the room which might be making them uncomfortable. Oh, this was my house and I was not supposed to worry about it. This was the place that I was not supposed to fear. This was my house and I was not supposed to Rod, what do you think your 15-year-old self would think about you and the music that you make? Don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I I really just don't, I don't feel like that person. You know, I, I really feel like that I've had a few different lives. Would he not recognize you now? Do you think he wouldn't necessarily see a continuation of, of who he was? Would you just be like, oh, wow, I wonder who this is? Yeah. I've had such a wild life. I don't really understand how I got here, honestly. I I think it would just be so insane. (laughs) If I was 15 and I saw myself now, I I don't think um, I'd really understand. If you could recommend one other queer artist for me to feature on this podcast as a future guest, who should that be? I would say my friend Sophie, who makes music a soft lad. She's kind of one of the best people in the world. She's really, really incredible. Um, I think she's really like, she's had so many different experiences and she's, I think just turned 30 maybe. And she's really wise beyond her years. She's very talented. Um, and she's really, really funny. So I think you should talk to her. So to wrap up then, I'd like to ask the guests coming on to recommend a song of theirs, which would act as a perfect gateway song into their catalogue. This is for people who have never heard of you, who've never heard one of your songs, and you think would be the perfect gateway drug into your catalogue. What would that be and why? I, I, I think maybe I'll say In Your Care, which is from my second album, which is about sort of moving to New York, which is a, a pivotal moment in my storyline. And it's about how there's a line in Hedwig and the Angry Inch, if you've seen that, yeah. where Hedwig's mother, Hedwig Schmidt, says to the son, to be free, sometimes you have to lose a part of oneself. And I think that that's kind of what happened when I moved to New York. It's like I moved away and I felt so liberated and so emancipated. But of course it meant leaving family in Wales, you know, which is very far away from New York, easy, easy ride from London, but not so much from New York, um, and friends in London that I care about greatly and not seeing those people on a day-to-day basis. So I wrote that song about the, you know, the friction between 
freedom and loss. Um, and production-wise, it references lots of dance music and classical music that I love. And I'm really proud of this song. I wrote it with my friend John Shave, who's just amazing. Um, so yeah, I'll say it in your care. Which is a perfect choice. My friend Guy, who is a big fan of your music, when I told him I was doing his interview, I, I asked him if there was any particular songs he'd like me to ask you about, and he cited that one. He said it was oh. absolutely beautiful. Oh, that's that's very kind. Every year as we crawl to December, count down the days till you think I remember where I'm from and the life that you gave me. If only you knew you were wrong. Cause it's in the music, the words I've been singing. It's the color that never washes up. It's the beat in this heart you've been missing. The taste of the things you're wishing for Though my mouth moves in different directions And my skin knows another's touch by now All the cracks are as plain to see But I learn to be strong And learn to be free And I know that to your eyes It seems like I'm alone Rod, aka Bright Light, Bright Light, thank you so much for coming here on In the Key of Q and sharing so much with us and sharing your music. It's been it's been really lovely to have you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Life is good out here in New York. I miss my friends. I miss the rain, but I catch a glimpse of you there in the rear view. Hear you laugh in the words that I say. I hope that you're okay. I hope that there's color in all your days. And when I look out to the sea, I hope that you're strong. And I hope that you're free. And I know that to your eyes, it seems like I'm alone. I know that where you are. I feel too far from home And I know I spend Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember, you can support In the Key of Q via Patreon or alternatively, recommend it to a friend. The theme music is by Pauline Nidu at unstoppablemonsters.com with press and PR by Paul Smith. Help others to discover new queer music by giving the show a review where you listen to podcasts. The show was made at Pup Media. I'm Dan Hall. Go listen to some music and I'll see you next Tuesday.